Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio and our sponsors, the Hewlett Foundation and the Capsonel Foundation. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Before we get started, EdSource is in the middle of its annual Newsmatch campaign, when whatever you contribute to EdSource is worth twice as much to us. EdSource is a nonprofit organization, and once a year we turn to readers and listeners to ask you to give generously to support our work. We'd really appreciate it if you went to our website and clicked on the donate button and made a contribution. Lewis, as you know, it's really taken an all-consuming effort by all of us at EdSource to inform readers and listeners about the huge challenges that our students and teachers are experiencing this year. So if you've appreciated our efforts, this is an opportunity to express it and help ensure that we can continue with our work We thank you for your support. I'll second that, John. And, you know, this has been and continues to be an extraordinary week, which is demanding all of our energies. And with most of everyone's attention focused on the presidential election, this week we're going to take a look at California's elections, especially those initiatives affecting young people and schools in general. On the California ballot this year, voters were asked to reform Prop 13 by increasing taxes on commercial properties. This initiative has been years in the making. Another initiative on the ballot was an attempt to reverse Prop 209, the controversial ban on affirmative action approved by voters in 1996. You're talking about Prop 16. It went down to a resounding defeat. In fact, it was defeated by a 56% no vote That was the same percentage of voters who approved Proposition 209 24 years ago. No change at all. Yeah, that bit of a shocker, John, uh, especially given the change in the demographics in California over the last quarter century. And then there was Prop 15 that would have created a split property tax role. That faces an uncertain fate. Right now, the initiative is behind by several percentage points as the votes get counted up. But millions of ballots still need to be counted, so really unclear how this is going to play out. Whatever happens to Proposition 15, on a local level, school construction bonds passed in dozens of school districts, including Los Angeles Unified, where a bond measure worth $7 billion was approved overwhelmingly. This was a welcome victory for a district that has struggled to get voters to back it financially in recent years. Well, this week we've reached out to several Californians to help make sense of what happened here and where to go next. First, we're going to talk to Pedro Nogueira, the relatively new dean of the USC Rossier School of Education, to get his thoughts on Prop 16. That's the Affirmative Action Initiative. So, Pedro, why do you think voters rejected the notion of bringing affirmative action back to California? I mean, it seemed like this was the right time to do it. Yeah, I think for one thing, the issue did not get much attention. The campaign, it was like a stealth campaign. Not many people even heard about it. And I don't think the educational work that needed to accompany it took place, you know, to educate why it was needed and what it would do. So I think that's one factor. The other factor is that if you look at the Cal State system and the UC system, with respect to Latinos, the, the representation's gone up quite a bit. And so probably many people who did study the issue said, well, we've done fine without 209. And to some degree, that's true. What we don't see is the fact that the state continues to lose its top black students because the top black students in the states will get admitted to schools anywhere in the country 
And the, the sad part about that is that when they choose to go to college elsewhere, we also lose them from the state almost always long term. So I think that for black students in particular, this is a real blow. I debated uh, Ward Connolly, who was the champion of Prop 209 back in the 90s, a number of times. And what I argued then is still the case, is that if you don't address the issue systemically, that is that uh, if you don't look at the inequities in our K-12 system and why it is that we're not producing more kids of color who are eligible and competitive for admission to the UC or the Cal State system, we're really never going to solve the problem. And we have a long way to go in that regard still. So let me ask you, though, to what extent do you think this really will make a difference? I mean, either at the K-12 or you've alluded to the higher education system. Uh, Given that the Supreme Court over the years has really put a lot of constraints on how affirmative action can be used. Well, in, in certain respects, our ability to use race as a factor in missions, I think, is a real limitation. It, it certainly we have a lot of evidence showing that when the, our institutions are more diverse, it benefits our society as a whole. If you don't produce enough black and Latino doctors, you end up with a shortage of doctors in black and Latino communities. So it, it really has long term consequences for our country, uh, who we educate, and how we educate them. At the same time, as I said a moment ago, Affirmative action never solved the systemic issues of inequality in our educational system. And there's nothing holding back our policymakers from doing that. Now, we did defeat, unfortunately, Prop 15, which would have brought more resources into the system. And I do want to acknowledge that California's taken some steps to improve equity in school funding in the last recent years under Jerry Brown. But we have a long way to go. We still have our poorest kids, disproportionate kids of color, concentrated in under-resourced schools. So we're not providing the kind of educational opportunities that would make affirmative action unnecessary. Well, let me just segue quickly. You raised the issue of Prop 15. I have to say the advocates, uh, proponents of Prop 15 are still hoping that this will pass, even though right now it's uh, you know lagging a bit in the vote tally. Why do you think that Prop 15 that would have created a split property tax role is doing so poorly or did so poorly. Uh, You really would have hoped that this would have been a slam dunk for Californians given so much publicity and reporting on the struggles that schools are having and the finances. Again, I would say who ran the campaign and uh, who are the spokespeople for that campaign? You know, I follow these issues closely and I can't tell you. I mean, I saw a couple ads on television, but I wouldn't associate the the campaign for Prop 15 with particular individuals who were able to clearly express why it was necessary. Governor Newsom seemed to kind of, I think he endorsed it at the end, but he was not a champion of the measure. And no one of great stature was. And so I, I think in a political process, you need effective spokespeople. You need to really campaign and explain the issues to the public. So, Pedro... If Prop 15 doesn't get voter approval, where do people who really care about the future of schools go at this point? To the legislature, to Washington? I mean, what's the next step here? Education is still largely the state's responsibility. So we have to look to the state legislature and to Governor Newsom for some new ideas, new approaches to improve funding for our schools. California, especially in our city, still has very large class size and still underfunds its schools. So We can't rely on local property taxes alone because, as we know, there are too many communities where they can't generate the revenue on their own. Thank you, Pedro Nogueira, Dean of the USC Rossier School of Education. Thanks, Louis. 
For another perspective on Prop 15, we'll turn next to someone with a sharp eye on Los Angeles and Sacramento. Brian Smith is Chief External Officer for the Partnership for LA Schools. That's a nonprofit that runs 19 schools in Los Angeles Unified. He also co-chairs State Superintendent Tony Thurman's Committee on Closing the Achievement Gap. Well, let's start local. It's a big deal that Los Angeles Unified passed its construction bond after voters defeated a parcel tax last March. So what, what do you make of that? There were a couple of things that helped measure our pass. One, the voter turnout. Obviously, the parcel tax was not at a time where we had the presidential campaign, where millions of more people turned out who wouldn't have turned out before. So I think that certainly boosted measure our, our success. So before we turn to state issue, uh, do you have buildings that will benefit from that? at your LA Partnership Schools? So the partnership supports 19 historically underserved schools in Watts, Boyle Heights, and South LA, and LA Unified. So as we think about implementation, obviously it's going to be important that these resources go to the communities most in need, and I'm sure many of our campuses will benefit from that. So Ryan, you were a big supporter of Proposition 15 to raise taxes on commercial property. It's not looking good as we're here today. It could be weeks before we know for sure what the outcome is, but let's do a thought exercise. Assume that it won't pass. So how do you build a coalition to create new revenue? What's your thought? I know it's it's razor thin right now, and many of the folks who fought for it valiantly still have their fingers crossed. But to your point, if it didn't pass, Prop 15 built like the broadest and most powerful coalition I've seen of progressive forces in a long time. So I, I, I think that coalition isn't going away. I would say that they're going to be back fighting for structural changes and particularly fighting for revenues for schools and communities and for black, brown, and low-income students. So we may be chipping away at some of the laws that unfortunately have not benefited uh, communities of color, but I think this coalition of labor unions, of community-based organizations, of parents and uh, students is here to stay. Can you build a coalition that could get business support? Because obviously business opposed Prop 15. And do you need business to at least not fight something if you're going to pass a tax with additional revenue? I think the business community will come along. So there's a conversation right now about our short-term interest versus um, the state's long-term interest. And at the end of the day, it's important how we invest in students and families who are the future of our economy. So we have an economic imperative to ensure that our schools and communities are funded well because they are the future of our labor force. And I think our business partners should come to the table with our community-based partners and many others uh, so that we can have a, a discussion about what's in the long-term interest of the state. Talking with Ryan Smith with the Partnership for LA Schools. But Ryan, as you know, even if Prop 15 passes, there would not be immediate funding for schools, certainly not at the level that the initiative anticipates it would generate. So how concerned are you about the immediate future, the next year or two? and getting through this really, really deep trough that the state's budget is in. Obviously, Prop 15 is kind of a, a beginning of a long-term fight to think about how we think about revenues differently, given the pandemic and other challenges that we have funding schools across the state. 
we're really going to have to think about how we invest differently, whether it's on the revenue generation side, which I think we'll continue to have a conversation about, but also on the resource equity side. Clearly, we're going to have to think about the resources that we have and how we allocate them with the priority of making sure that they're uh, supporting our highest need communities. We're going to need more initiatives that really address equity in a way that is sustainable for the state while we're thinking about revenue generation. Well, we've been talking with Ryan Smith, Chief External Officer for the Partnership for Los Angeles Schools. You know, John, as expected, uh, huge amounts of money was spent on the Prop 15 campaign. In fact, a total of $140 million was spent between the two sides. Teachers unions in California were amongst the principal backers, with the California Teachers Association putting up $20 million and Mark Zuckerberg's Zuckerberg Initiative putting up about $14 million. California Federation of Teachers was also a prominent backer, and we have on the line the CFT's President Jeff Freitas. So Jeff, what's your sense of whether Prop 15 will be approved by voters once all the votes are counted? So the CFT has been a, a backer of this for years. We were actually part of the initial organization, the initial coalition to get this on the ballot uh, back in 1718. And it's through this education that we still feel hopeful we feel very positive about this. We have spent a lot of time educating the voters, and we, we feel that what is still out there it could go in our direction. Many people were hoping that Californians were ready to turn the tide, to turn the tide back on Prop 13. How do you explain the fact that it, this is looking still like an uphill struggle to get this passed? Any campaign that is uh, running such a large program proposition obviously has some tracking polling. And through that tracking polling, we were seeing over 50% um, up into the election. Very close to 50%, but in our own internal tracking, we know there were multiple polls and polls don't always tell the entire story, as we know from four years ago. So from the work that we were doing, that tracking polling that we were doing, we do feel hopeful. I think we're down to just about 4 million ballots that are still needing to be counted. Maybe it's just under 4 million. And that's a big number that what can put us over the edge. But let me ask you, though, um, one of the big questions was what impact the pandemic would have on the vote. And it could cut either way. People are very anxious. Their finances are strapped, concerned about potential raising of taxes might affect their eventually their own property taxes, even though the, the initiative doesn't affect them, versus so much attention focused on schools and knowing the needs of schools so that that would also have helped this. How do you feel that this current moment that we're in affected the vote? I think there were pros and cons in terms of the unfortunate pandemic. I do believe there were people that saw that we do need this revenue for our schools and for our communities to be able to fight back this pandemic and that, that they saw this as a positive. The research that we did was over 90% of this was going to be paid by 10% of the corporations in California. That's a huge figure that's going to be paying that $12 billion. It's a small population. And they're the ones that are making the billions of dollars. So I don't know if it helped or hurt. I think both sides of the story was being told and being felt by the voters. Thanks for talking with us today. Jeff Freitas, president of the California Federation of Teachers. Thank you. To talk about how the election might affect the budget picture for California schools, we have with us Bob Blattner. He's a Sacramento-based school consultant and an authority on school finances. So, Bob, Prop 15, which would raise 
taxes on commercial properties is not doing well. And if it doesn't pass, that would magnify concern over budget cuts and likely falling state revenues. And so, you know, there would be a lot of hope that a Biden presidency might come to the rescue. How bad might the budget situation be next year? And what difference might a Biden presidency make from a Trump presidency? There are so many balls in the air as a result of this election. I'm with you, John, that Prop 15 would have brought in some billions, but not until probably the pandemic has passed us. Uh, The one thing we did learn is that Prop 13 is still the third rail of California politics. You touch it, even peripherally, and you die. As far as the budget itself, since the last time we talked, we're seeing actually some really good news so far for the first quarter of the fiscal year. We're up almost $9 billion over projections, which is astonishing. We're basically back on track uh, where we thought we'd be in January, pre-pandemic. Of course, we're only a quarter of the way into the fiscal year. Way too early to think that that trend is going to hold or not be reversed. So there is still a lot of anxiety, appropriately so, uh, in the school community about revenues. And a lot of people were looking to this election as far as a remedy. I think the hope among the school community, regardless of their partisan lean, was to get a trifecta in Washington, meaning a unified government where the Senate, the House, and the presidency were all the same. I think that most people believed that a democratic trifecta was not only most likely, but also would provide the most resources for schools. That's looking pretty unlikely now. If the Republicans keep the Senate, we really frankly don't know what's gonna happen there. McConnell's already said, the leader of the Senate has already said, a stimulus package is job one, but we have no idea what that stimulus package is. To date, the uh, McConnell Republican Senate has been talking 500 billion, maybe a trillion dollars, whereas the Democratic run House has been talking about $2 trillion. And the mix is really different as well. Well, would a Biden presidency make a difference as far as what portion goes to schools? I don't know about a Biden presidency. I think a Democratic Senate would. Okay, when you look at what Obama did during the Great Recession, the ARA stimulus package was only about only about eight hundred billion dollars. But it sent about three times as much money to schools more than three times as much money to schools as the CARES Act, which is more than three times as much funding so far. Well, the CARES Act funding ends on December 31st. Most of it does. And so that leaves a tremendous gap. And what should schools do now, Bob? What should they assume when they're looking ahead? I think they have to plan on no help from the federal government. I think they have to plan on living with the deferrals that are now part of their budgets. And, you know, hope is is not a strategy. I think we can hope for better, but I don't think they can plan for it. If revenues continue dropping, Bob, could we extend the deferrals, which really are loans to school districts that the state will eventually pay back? Well, we kind of have to extend the deferrals until we start paying them back. The deferrals carry forward year to year to year like a salary advance. There is, I think, a little more ceiling, a little more bandwidth for deferrals to add for next year. We could maybe squeeze another two or three billion in deferrals on top of the two billion we had last year and the nine billion we have this year. 
the negotiations over the stimulus package will have a significant effect on the state budget. Not only the direct assistance to the state budget, but the stimulus package is really going to affect the economy, is really going to affect California's economy and consumer confidence and spending. The other wild card out here I think we can't forget about. There was an election a couple days ago, but yesterday was also the first day that we've had 100,000 new cases of COVID-19. That's not going away. And that's, you know, the 800-pound elephant in the middle of the room that somehow we've forgotten about for the last couple of days. Thank you for joining us today, Bob Blattner, school consultant and an authority on school finances. Thanks, John. Thanks, Lewis. Take care. John, you know, one thing we haven't discussed so far is Prop 18, which I'll just remind uh, those of you out there would have extended the vote to 17-year-olds, but under pretty limited conditions. It would have allowed 17-year-olds to vote in the primary election in the same year that they turned 18 and became eligible to vote in the general election. Unfortunately, that very modest effort to involve young people in the electoral process, which seems doubly important in light of the events of the last few weeks, was also rejected by voters in California. Well, let's not go out on a negative note. There was one youth-friendly measure that did pass, and it was in Oakland. That was Measure QQ, and it will allow 16- and 17-year-olds to vote in school board elections, and it did, as I mentioned, get voter approval. Overwhelmingly, in fact, by two-thirds majority, right? Exactly. We have on the line Jessica Ramos, a senior at Skyline High in Oakland, who is a student member on Oakland Unified School Board. And most importantly, in terms of our interview today, she was a youth organizer for QQ. So, Jessica, now that it looks like 16 and 17-year-olds in Oakland will have the vote, at least on school board elections, will they vote? And what difference do you think that might make? The differences that we'll make is, one, to be more engaged with our board members and being more engaged with our own education system. If we elect the board members that you know want to represent us and be able to have that voice, I do think it'll make a big difference on the education system by teaching us of civic engagement, that which will make students um, long-time vote, um, voters for the future. I'm just wondering, uh, you, you're on the Oakland School Board How involved are most students in Oakland in school governance and school-related issues? Especially this year, there's been a big impact that I've seen that students just want to be very involved in their government and just in their school government just because of how we've seen that our education system is not the best. And I've seen just as a student board member, seeing students that are calling to in to talk about their schools, to talk about their own experiences and how they want to change things in their own education system. So our education system will not fail them or fail us. What advice would you give to students in other cities that will probably look at what you did and say, boy, we have to do that too. That's good. What did you learn that you could pass on to others? I have received a lot of, through social media, a lot of students and teens reaching out to me and talking about how can we start this? How can we start this movement? The thing that I would say is to not give up. I think there's a lot of Adults who try to stop this and say, you know, oh, you know, you should just wait till you get 18. You should just wait. And I think it's very hopeful that our own youth start this national movement to have every youth vote. Well, we've been talking with Jessica Ramos. She's a student member of the Oakland School Board, a senior at Skyline High School in Oakland. Thanks for talking with us today, Jessica. No, thank you, John. Thank you, Louis.
You know, after the events of the last few months, a few years, in fact, it's a reminder that the future really lies in the hands of the Jessica Ramoses of the world and uh, really encouraging to see the level of activism that uh, she and her fellow students have shown in Oakland, hoping that will spread to other parts of the state. And on that note, that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe McDonald, still producing all of this remotely. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. Please remember to go to our website to make a contribution to Ed Source's Newsmatch campaign. Don't wait. We can really use your help right now. Seriously, folks, we really could use your help. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.